Thank you for joining our Transform 365 podcast, a discipleship and teaching ministry of SWCC. We pray this teaching helps you to grow in your journey with Christ. We have some great resources available for you on transform365.com webpage. Feel free to download discipleship materials, small group teaching, as well as peruse our training workshops. Also take time to visit www.swcc.org for videos, teaching, and more. We thank you for listening and your support, and we would love to hear from you. So use our contact page and drop us a line. Now, for our podcast teaching. So welcome to the Transform 365 podcast. I'm Dr. Cody Wallace, and this is my right hand, Pastor John. And today we are joined by uh, Dr. Elliot E. Johnson, not to be confused with the Tampa Bay baseball player, Elliot T. Johnson, (laughs) who's a utility guy. Um, He's the founder of Asian Theological Seminary, has been all over the world teaching throughout um, all all of the world, I guess you would say. I looked at the different areas. I think there was only like one nation not listed, but... uh, You've you've taught um, various peoples and people groups all over the world, Uh, has been a professor for 47 years at DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, Uh, pastored in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area for a number of years. You've written um, expository hermeneutics, which I have the latest copy right here. Um, You have contributed to contemporary dispensationalism, the Bible knowledge uh, commentary, and a case for premillennialism. Um, it's as I uh, noted on the back of your book as well that um, you've been married to your lovely wife, your your better half, in for sixty two years, wow. and that you guys have six children and twenty two grandchildren. That's fantastic! Congratulations. So <laughs> that does uh, keep us busy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it does. Well, Dr. Johnson, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for letting me be on your cast. That's great. Yeah, it's a blessing. It is a blessing. Well, um, Dr. Johnson, as we get into today, um, I I would love to know just kind of your background um, and, you know, uh, a little bit about you. Um, How did you, uh, and this is a question that we commonly ask people, how did you come into your faith? How did you, you know, first learn about the Lord and and trust Him as your Savior? Yeah, well, as uh, I was raised in a Christian home, but I'm not as clear about my response while I was with my parents. I uh, grew up in Chicago. Hey, and- John's a chai guy. <laughs> <laughs> and we were uh, we were on the northwest side near near Wrigley Field, a little further west, north. Um, We were playing baseball in an empty lot, and I hit a ball through the window of a house, and as all good boys did, we all scattered. (laughs) Well, I had a sense of guilt that was associated with that as well as other things, and strangely, the young lady that, or the people that lived in that house invited us to a Bible study that girls from Moody Bible Institute were going to teach. And um, so out of guilt, I guess, I got the guys together and we all went to the study. And there I sensed a 
freedom from the guilt I had been uh, feeling as a result of them talking about our Lord as a savior from sin. So that instance perhaps identified my salvation most dramatically in terms of what I personally remember. Mm. So how did you go from Chai Town to Dallas? <laughs> well, that, that's also that's also interesting. I I went to Northwestern University in Evanston and actually graduated as an engineer. Wow. Uh, however, it was during those years at Dallas, I mean at uh, Northwestern, that God brought a sense of conviction that he wanted me to consider the ministry. Now, that wasn't my strong suit as far as natural gift, but it was what he was interested in. So I asked our pastor, and he said, well, you need to study at Moody for to learn the Bible. You don't know the Bible, and that, and that was certainly true. Uh, so going to Moody, the dean of the faculty suggested, well, you need to go to Dallas. So in 1960, I came to Dallas as a young student, uh, graduated in 64, was hired on as a teaching fellow in the next four years during my doctorate. And it was after the doctorate that we went to the Philippines to start this new school, Asian Theological Seminary. Mm, that's fantastic. That's great. So... Um... As you're the writer of the expository hermeneutics, um, wh why did you feel it was important to write about hermeneutics and to try to bring clarity uh, to the, I would say it's, it is like an art form to, you know, uh, to, <laughs> to, to teach it and to understand uh, the Bible clearly, for sure. Well, you know, the origin of the book actually goes back to 1924, wow. <laughs> Lewis Berry Chafer was establishing Dallas Seminary, and he had been a musician, and at that stage in the church, there were a lot of Bible study, uh, I mean, preaching ministries, and he would support a number of different preachers. Mm -hmm. What was his conviction that many who were Christians didn't actually understand the Bible? So he wanted to introduce at Dallas Seminary a unique department, which would he would it would be the Bible department that would fit between exegesis, both Hebrew and Greek, on one side, and theology on the other side. And its goal was to help us to understand the Bible. Yeah. Now, if I could just take a couple of minutes. To give you a little idea of how this the program began, some of its problems, and what we were trying to do with, with the book, there were really two questions that the school faced. One question was, who should teach this? And the second one is, how do you understand the Bible? Yeah. Well, they decided that they would have visiting lecturers. They were pastors throughout the country. They would come at either the fall or the spring and teach one book so that over the four years of the training, you studied eight books. Yeah. Well, I remember I came to Dallas in 1960, as I said, 
And they still had these visiting lecturers. And you learned something about the facts of the book, which could be basically found in most books. You learned perhaps the outline of the book that the pastor was teaching. But the, the, the students that actually communicated the important message of the Bible were those students that preached the same sermons that were preached to them. Mm. So they weren't doing anything unique. They, a, they simply re-preached the same sermon. They liked it. They hoped their audience would enjoy it as well. Well, that's how the department began. The school recognized that that wasn't adequate. Yeah. It was also evident that studying eight books over four years misses some of the 66 that are in the Bible. So <laughs> as a result, they began to add a uh, resident faculty. Jade White Pentecost was the oh, first yeah. professor who was chairman of the department. And uh, he taught us the argument of the book. Now that made a lot more sense to me. How do we think through it? But he never taught us how we would could do it. Well, they added a course that Howard Hendricks taught in methodical Bible study. Mm -hmm. The thing that, I mean, this, this enthralled. Was, was that one Bible study methods, I think? Yeah, that yes. was it. Yeah, that was it. And uh, it was great. I mean, we, a number of us got a challenge to continue to study our Bibles from that course. But we were never told how to link that Bible study mm -hmm. with following the argument that an author was developing. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until I got to the Philippines and we were starting the school, I was reading a journal from the Evangelical Theological Society. Walt Kaiser had written the article and he recommended E.D. Hirsch. Mm -hmm. E.D. Hirsch was a, a professor of literature, he was Jewish, at the University of Virginia. And he introduced me to a number of perspectives. He said, number one, the Bible is a lot like literature, is a lot like the law. It may have been written years ago, but it still can be understood today. And it still speaks with authority today. Yeah. Perhaps our constitution is the document which you know would be most like that yeah but what he introduced in studying the bible as literature really helped me and i'll conclude with just two things aside from the discussion of the value of this literature and the nature of this literature what he what he introduced was what is verbal meaning i understand you studied under uh uh, Dr. Ryrie. Well, Dr. Ryrie said, used to teach us, you got to find the literal meaning. Mm -hmm. Well, is the reader the one who decides what the meaning should be for a book? Never. Well, no, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, so in exegesis, we learn grammatical historical. Mm-hmm. But grammatical historical is generally limited to the immediate context. What Walt 
or what, what Hirsch indicated was that we've got to read books to understand the author's intended meaning as he has expressed it. So we had a definition of what we were looking for. What does Paul, or more importantly, what does God yeah, Holy Spirit. Yeah. intend to say through this scripture? Yeah. That was one thing. The second thing is we learned how to come to understand. Uh, Heidegger had introduced what they call the hermeneutical spiral or circle. One side of the circle is the reading side. The other side is the reasoning side. And what he laid out was you've got to read the whole piece. Mm -hmm. Now, I grant you, this is not an easy task when we're coming <laughs> to the Bible. Now, Al has told me about your son and the class he's teaching yes. and how many of those students are really capable of reading whole books of the Bible. Yeah. So you start with reading. Your goal is to find the message. What is the author trying to communicate through this book? So it's the message that is his goal. On the reasoning side, we then, if this is the message, then how does this section, how does this section, uh, how does this section of the text contribute to the truth of that message? Yeah, how is, it, how that, is that always aiming towards the overarching purpose? Yeah, that's right. Writing? Yeah, that's right. And uh, so, and that's the argument. Hmm. And I'm right now teaching a class on Zoom that also includes people from New Mexico to Israel. And uh, we're studying the Gospel of John. And that's, I chose that because it, more clearly than perhaps other narrative books, yeah. narrative history books, expresses a message. It's written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Exactly. So in some sense, that call to believe in him is the subject of the book. Yeah, it's always aiming towards that. That's yeah. right. And it's the, the argument is you ought to believe. Mm -hmm. Or you ought to receive what Jesus has testified to in the story of his of his ministry. So you have a, a general idea of the message, and then you see how each of the parts. And the guys really appreciate it. Um, hopefully, they appreciate. I mean, there's they're they're inviting their friends, which is one of the indications that there is a, a uh, that they like it so so that's what that's what the book is about it's rather a unique you know st set within the discussion of how we read and interpret and understand the bible yeah, yeah. you know dr johnson i'm i'm also from the northwest side of chicago oh from, yeah from humble park i don't know if you're familiar, you're familiar. Yeah, yeah yeah that's where i'm from humble park but um i've heard and other podcasts and also from brother Al here that, um, and you know, Cody mentioned that you taught at DTS for so long. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, the stories about you hanging out with Zane Hodges and Henry Robinson and Bruce Walkie? Well, give us that, the best that, one. That, <laughs> well, that, that is an interesting because when we came back from the Philippines, 
we were not scheduled to teach at Dallas. Dr. Pentecost asked me to teach for a year for, I mean, yeah, during our furlough year. And they already had hired a man to come. Well, a couple of things I, we learned during that year. One was that Haddon, Robinson, and uh, Bruce Walkie, and Zane would meet regularly to discuss E.D. Hirsch themselves. Mm. So Zane became a continuing friend of mine. I'd actually majored in New Testament literature in both my in both my master's and doctoral program and so we were friends we also agreed on the gospel <laughs> and as a result uh i he helped me mature through this process mm. see what hendrix was doing and what pentecost were doing they were never put together yeah how do you do the study to really understand what the bible is saying so that was that's one interesting story. But another interesting story is how I ended up at Dallas. It was the students who I was trying to help them follow this process at a very beginning stage. And they liked it. Mm. So when the professor who was scheduled to be hired came in to teach that week, I concluded that they said, we don't want him. We want this other kid and <laughs> that's how i think I, the lord used that <laughs> to bring us to dallas in 1972 wow. yeah uh there, there there was some amazing uh teachers and theologians great minds at that time I yes mean, i would have always liked to have met uh stanley Toussaint. he always seemed like such a character whenever i'd see him you know <laughs> on on the uh the podcasts and the um the the uh chapels so yeah yeah well he was special he was also a professor in the new testament department so i had zane and stan and we became good friends when i started teaching he was still teaching but now he was in the bible department yeah. And then uh, S. Lewis Johnson was the chairman of the department. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a that's a big batting lineup right there. I'll tell you. <laughs> so, Dr. Johnson, for someone joining today. OK, and they're very let's just say they're very um, beginner in their faith. They don't know what we're talking about when we're saying hermeneutics. What would you say um, is hermeneutics? Now, um, I, I think that you put it so beautifully and simply in, in your book. I think it's chapter one. You say, um, you simply put it as understanding the truth content of scriptures. But would you want to dive a little bit deeper into, you know, explaining it? Well, <laughs> that, that's an interesting. It actually goes back in history to Aristotle. It was Aristotle that listed a number of disciplines that we have from all the way from physics to metaphysics and so forth. Those are terms, again, I haven't defined, but they were ways of our thinking. Yeah. One way that we need to think is how do I understand you as you're talking? How do you understand me? And that discipline became known as hermeneutics. It was a name that was chosen from a Greek goddess, Hermes, who interpreted 
divine oracles that were part of the religions in Rome at the time. Mm -hmm. So the, the scholarly world chose that rather foreign and strange name and used it to describe the discipline of how we come to understand. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's great. So uh, it's like this, the, the, the way we interpret written and verbal communications, you would say, um, and the study by which that, that takes place is, is a great, yeah. Is what we're after, is yeah. what we're trying to communicate. Yeah. So there are four types of hermeneutics. There's the literal, there's the moral, there's the allegorical, and um, uh, anagogical. Um, why do you think the literal approach is the strongest approach to reading and understanding scripture? Okay, can I change your thinking? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't think it's necessarily the strongest. We can't decide as the reader what the Bible is going to mean. Mm-hmm literal became so prominent in the Middle Ages and the Reformation because the, the Western church, the Catholic church, was translating or interpreting everything allegorically yeah. as an analogy to something else. And therefore, what Luther said and much of what Calvin did was to understand the, the Bible at face value but still you're understanding the authors who wrote in the scripture. Mm -hmm. So I think, and by the way, if you go to the university today, this is a, a major question within the society. You know, what do, what is verbal meaning? What does it mean mm -hmm. to mean something? <laughs> These are all such abstract ideas. You do them sort of intuitively, but you seldom think about well, what's involved? Yeah. yeah. Can I switch gears? Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about dispensationalism, if um, if you don't mind. Oh, I don't <laughs> mind. <laughs> of course you don't. I think you're one of the top scholars when it comes to dispensationalism. So um, when you mention when when we mention the word dispensation to somebody, you know, here at church, they they either think it's a cuss word or a theological <laughs> cuss word, or or they think it's some heresy that Darby brought up. Like, how would you, um, in a good short definition of dispensationalism for somebody dispensationalism like dispensationalism is the studying of how God has governed human history from the time of Adam to the time of His completion of His purposes in history. Hmm. That's it's God's governing. It's yeah. God's governing, uh, you know, life. Yeah. Uh, how do you? And study? that government, we believe, progressively unfolded by, according to the dispensations. Mm -hmm. Now, can I teach? Can I suggest another alternative? This hopefully will not lose you, and will not lose your friends in the in the uh, in the podcast either. When we came to the conclusion that we had to study biblical books as a whole and in their literary nature, we found that it was the narrative history books 
that basically traced the, the sequence of God's story from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we had to study each book according to its, and this is going to be a word that you, according to its literary form, or the word we use today is genre. Mm-hmm. And narrative history has three basic characteristics. One is a history book often begins with a setting which lays out the basic foundation for the history or story that's going to be told in the book. Well, I have one of the things I'm trying to tell my my colleagues, though they don't enjoy this very much, is do we actually have seven dispensations? I always, as a young student, by the way, Dr. Ryrie was my friend as well. He used to swim at the YMCA, and I'd go over there at lunch, and he'd he'd treat me to lunch, and we would talk about uh, dispensationalism or this this whole subject. So Dr. Ryrie is a great, dear, dear friend, dear, really a a loving man at at the school Mm -hmm. and as a teacher. So, but one of the things that we disagreed with, or he and he even questioned it, it doesn't really matter if you have seven dispensations or not. Yeah. Well, I always had difficulty with the first three. The first three covered what uh, 11 chapters, then promise would cover the rest of Genesis. Now, I think promise actually covers all of the Bible. Mm. The gospel is God's promise to us today. And it develops from the promise that was given in the Old Testament. Then law is added in Exodus, and that continues until we get to Malachi. So how is it that you have three dispensations at the beginning that only cover 11 chapters where the others are much more expansive broad, and broad. That's right. So let me, can I suggest another alternative? Yeah, we're waiting. Brother Al told us that you you have a a unique twist to this. (laughs) (laughs) Just ask Al. He knows all of my foibles. No, but go Uh, ahead. Let us tell us. what What I think is happening is God is introducing us to his basic uh, purposes in history. First was to create Adam and to give Adam the right to rule, mediating God's rule on earth. Now, when Adam fell, he lost that right to rule. That's why Christ came to reestablish that. In his first advent to provide salvation, in his second advent to uh, bring his rule to earth. So by the end of the millennium, you actually have fulfilled that purpose. But that's why you must have a millennium. Now, I'm going to make this even a bit more. I think Satan came into history 
to undermine God's plan by undermining Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter 3, you have God's, I mean, Satan's initial temptation of Eve, by the way, where he questioned God's word, and then he denies God's word as, as the basic sin in tempting Eve. And then Adam ate, and as a result, Adam lost the position he was given, and Satan usurped it. Hmm. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam believed that God would have offspring through Eve, even after he had said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, there wasn't. There was one sense in which they died, but there was another sense in which they were going to live. And you, as you know, Genesis three fifteen is a judgment on the serpent based on the promise that God would bring an offspring to Eve. Mm -hmm. And of course, Matthew chapter one, we understand that's Mary's offspring. Yeah. But that was the first purpose. Second purpose is to bring salvation, which is in Genesis 3. But then as the human race began to multiply, it would not, it did not respect the life that God had brought. And so God introduced human government through Noah, Genesis chapter 9, and human government's basic responsibility is to protect human life. I mean, that's why the nation, our nation, is so guilty with the question of abortion. Mm -hmm. we're, we're hitting at the very foundation of what God said needed to be protected. Yeah, I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said um, that the, the, he felt that the Civil War was a result of the guilt of slavery. Yeah. You know. Um, and I think much the same with abortion. I would say you're right. I would think that what's happening now to America is the result of our guilt in taking human life. Mm -hmm. hmm. Then the other, the, the fourth thing is in the Tower of Babel. And many have connected that to worldwide government, kind of thing that's taking place in Davao, Switzerland, or has just taken place where they're trying to get a one world government well the book of revelation does talk about that yeah. and i i would understand that as related to babylon the great the harlot mm -hmm. and their so anyway the first four chapters i mean first 11 chapters introduce god's fundamental purposes that are being worked out in history mm -hmm. the provision of salvation according to promise through Abraham, ultimately expressed in Joseph. But if you read that carefully, the patriarchs were not, were not free from sin. Mm -hmm. And the law was added to expose the presence of sin in the life of the nation. And that becomes your second dispensation. 
third dispensation is when Christ comes as a fulfillment to promise to provide or promise deliverance from sin. And you have the dispensation of grace, at least as I understand it, which is God's provision, not based on anything we can do, but on the basis of receiving what he has provided through Christ. Mm -hmm. This generation will end with the return of our Lord, first for the church. I still believe in pre-tribulational rapture. (laughs) And then the, the, the tribulation followed by the return of Christ and the millennium. And that, that millennium then is the fourth basic disp. So I would take dispensationalism, which is God's sequential governing of human history, to basically be defined in that sequence. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we've we've um interviewed a few different um dispensationalists on this um podcast now and and we've heard uh, a few different takes. You know, we've heard now. Now this is, is like a um, looking at four different dispensations. There's uh, some that say seven, some say nine. We had one. Uh, was Doctor Cones fourteen? Something like that. Yeah, Somewhere in Dr. the teens. Yeah, Doctor Chris Cone was in the teens. We don't remember exactly where. So um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So everybody, you know, and, and that doesn't make us, you know, I think that's the important thing is, you know, we um, just as actually the slogan of DTS, we teach the truth and love. So it's okay to um, not see eye to eye in those areas, right? Um, it's just, uh, we're still brothers. We, we serve the same Lord. We have the same Savior. And uh, if, you know, what I always tell people is if we can agree on salvation, we are brothers, so it's okay to have disagreements within this. So we don't within the yeah within exactly. the family, huh? Within the minutia, it's okay. Um, so let me ask you, uh, as as we're talking on on dispensation, right? Um, and just talking about how God works again. So just to define it, how God works in the timeline of human history. So that's really talking about dispensation, what you believe towards the Lord for salvation. How do you see dispensationalism uh, fit into the way? Now, I'm tying this into uh, uh, hermeneutics and expository hermeneutics. So we're going to tie this in together, right? Okay. How does dispensationalism fit into the way one studies and interprets scripture? Well, it seems to me that it's as you study a book like Genesis, you see very naturally that God's word of promise is the governing feature that is influent having been given to Eve, mm-hmm. believed by Noah, but then re reinstituted with Abraham. So promise becomes, you know, such a natural expression and necessary expression. A promise is God's committing himself to complete what he says he will do. So promise is so natural. But the difference some people would have thought, and I and I, maybe I thought this way, that at the end of Genesis, promise ended. I don't think it does. I think Moses is a offspring of promise, as uh, is David, as is Joshua, 
you know, all of the leaders are provided by God through what he promises to do. But he expects his, his people to, to understand him. And the law is a revelation of the Lord's holiness, both from the perspective of God and the perspective of our responsibility to each other. Um, you know, it can be summarized, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Dr. Doctor, what do you think the, the future of dispensationalism is? We see a lot of the top schools don't teach it anymore. And uh, You're right. What do you well, think the future let, is? Well, uh, that's, that's a great question. I, that's why I have expository hermeneutics. <laughs> if the pastor preaches what the Bible is teaching, they will become dispensational. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you'll hear it regularly taught. And if you're listening, it is the natural outgrowth of studying Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, numbers <laughs> and so forth you know just write sequentially through and you see how his revelation of his ways is expanding mm -hmm. i mean he's expanding that and the foundation then in the pentateuch or the torah and then the you know movie so i would say i have changed my stress to preaching in the church Mm -hmm. and preaching books of the Bible. Mm. Yeah, I think I heard you in a different uh, podcast. Uh, I wish I knew what, remembered which one it was. You said that um, you feel that the way to keep dispensationalism alive and well is actually in the church and that it is alive That's right. and well when we're preaching the word of God, correct, you know, for all it's worth. Um, let me ask you why. Amen. Think, Amen. Yeah, rather than the the, the academy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, why do you think having the historical grammatical, right? We we look at its context. We look at the people. We try to put ourselves in the sandals of those who came before us, right? They didn't have Nikes. Um, why do you believe it's, um, that is a so important rather than this kind of what's taking place? I love, by the way, how you lay it out so beautifully. You, you go... I, I believe it's the first chapter you say, you know, this is how the Bible was interpreted um, back in Plagian's day. And this was how, you know, um, you just list each time frame and then you get to today. And it's, you know, you really just hit home with this postmodern way of reading into the text. Right. And you see yeah. all these different kind of cultish followings coming out of reading the text wrong right um there's people that uh you know even even the not the christian side but like the jewish side kabbalah has come out of you know let's let's read into the text and pull what's not really there out of the text why do you think it's actually such a dangerous play to really read into the text rather than to look at it historically and grammatically look at even the original language really just go back to the original intent well, obviously, I think that is the, the place we ought to be. 
In the historical section, by the way, I do discuss this. I don't know if you ever came across the name John Salehammer, mm -hmm. but he had a discussion of what grammatical historical meant. And the question, the most, one of the more difficult questions is how much of history do we bring to play in the interpretation of a text? Now, another area where we may disagree is what is the role of women in the church? One of the justifications of women ministering in the church is Ephesians 2. And what the argument will be, not that what Ephesians says, what Paul says, I do not permit women to teach men in the church. Well, they would argue because of the historical situation in Ephesus where women were not given education. That's why Paul said this. But we have no indication that that's the case. Yeah. What I've Salem, actually found counter that argument that uh, there was a lot more freedoms being enacted under uh, like Marcus Aurelius and and the, the rulers at that time towards women. Yeah. So anyway, that needs, you need to, I mean, I think that you need to think that through, mm -hmm. but in terms of reading into, have you ever come across the name Norm Geisler? Yes. Yes. Okay. Norm was a dear friend of mine. He taught at Dallas for about five years until his roughness of character, he was asked to leave. <laughs> but you know we made we made we made friends we became friends and remain friends he, one of his close students wrote a book on hermeneutics talking about keeping your method objective rather than subjective mm. and what you mean by that is not that you don't have presuppositions or beliefs that you bring when you study the Bible. Hmm. What you're trying to do, however, is to bring your under, your presuppositions, your beliefs, in harmony with what the Bible is saying. Under the Lord, yeah. That's right, that's right. And that's what our postmodern world is not doing. Hmm. It's so subjective. Um, and well, I, you know, I don't want to talk about the politics of our day, but that is, you know, a reflection of where our culture is. And it's really interesting what people are looking for in leadership. And it really isn't truth that they're looking for. What they're looking for is strength of a person or strength of character. Yeah. yeah. Or to agree with them. perhaps doing things their own way. I mean, you you agree with the way they do things. Yeah. So it's really dangerous to read into the Bible to make it say what we want it to say. That's postmodern. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that uh, you know we're we're in a dangerous place when we become um uh overly accepting of sin we should accept people 
but we should not accept sin. And I, I think that, um, you know, um, sadly, even interpretation today of scripture is, is um, we're losing some of the meaning as more interpretation and, and the interpreters do such a fine job. So I'm not trying to critique, but like um, because of the pressure of the whole gender issue, right? Um, they now you'll see as you read, and I'm not going to name Bibles, but you'll read in the scriptures that um, they'll say, now we are sons and daughters. That's right. God. And they add to the Bible. Yeah. And that is removing the idea of sonship that Jesus now, regardless of your gender, regardless of your position as slave or master, regardless of your position as Scythian, Greek, a Hebrew barbarian, that now you are the firstborn son, the sole inheritor of God's kingdom. Amen. You know, that is, has such strong meaning. And when you say now your sons and daughters, well, actually, they don't realize that they have yeah. just now when Jesus knew women from inheritance by putting that word daughters, mm. right? You've just removed them in a historical context. Amen. But you know, I think that they're doing an injustice in that. And, and maybe it's because pastors were not teaching it in that way. And so they figured they would just include it in, in the text. But I think it's a dangerous place. I agree. Yeah. Dr. Johnson, um, when it comes to um, the book Dispensationalism by Dr. Ryrie, um, he mentions the sine qua non. We talked a, little, a lot about the first part already. Let me, let's talk a little bit about the the second uh, the, exactly. distinction between Israel and the church and the, the theme of the Bible is the glory it. of God. And I know there's a debate between is the theme of, of the Bible the glory of God or is it the kingdom? But um, can you talk a little bit about why is it important to have a distinction between Israel and the church and then talk about the, the glory of God? Great. Good, good questions. I think the glory of God is this essential, the essential purpose of Scripture. It's to show his greatness. Mm -hmm. And it's God desiring us to share in his greatness. So I, I, I really favor, I really love the sine qua non. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was very interesting how that actually emerged. But so that, that's one thing. But another thing that is very important, I think, is the, the relationship between Israel and the church. Mm -hmm. This is going to affect the way you apply the Old Testament like the new covenant. When, when Jeremiah promises the new covenant, it's, an, it's a covenant that's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not the church. Yeah. So as a church, we are benefiting from, and I would go to Hebrews chapter 8, we are benefiting from a testament that God provided our Lord with, and we are beneficiaries of those blessings. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's not that we're covenant partners, but we're beneficiaries of the finished work of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important that in applying the Old Testament, we make it clear that those distinctions are recognized. Yeah. I mean, we could probably see why the mistake would have taken place 
during the time of the Reformation, right? Yes. They're coming across and they're reading Israel and the book of Revelation. And they're saying to themselves, there isn't a nation Israel, mm. uh, you know, and they're not around. Um, and so they kind of just, you know, say, well, we are the replacement of Israel. That's that replacement theology really sprouted out in the time of Calvin and Luther and Zwingli. Um, but in 1947, you know, here here comes Israel again and just as strong. And they're there today. And then it makes sense as you're reading mm -hmm. Revelation that it's talking about all the tribes once again. And um, look, I have yeah. a little bit of Jewish blood in me, but I don't know if I'm from the tri tribe of Benjamin, Dan, you know, <laughs> I don't know any of that stuff. But it, the truth is, is, um, you know, we are not that, you know, we're in that time of the Gentiles, right? And so Amen. we're, we're, uh, but the Lord is going to do that mighty work that 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 seventieth week of Daniel, where He'll be working with Israel once again. Amen. That's the beauty of it. Well, now, we're looking for that. Uh, yeah, we're, we're praying for that. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, Dr. Johnson, one of our favorite questions to ask. Unless, John, you got a couple more before we... I was going to get into progressive dispensations, <laughs> but that might take us all day. <laughs> but, uh, uh, that's that's my dear friend, Daryl Bach. Yeah, we, we have an interview with him again in, in a few days, actually. Yeah, he's great. But can, can you talk a little bit about it just you know briefly before we get to our last question? Well, I think that the basic issue that is is his seeing the church having a ruling influence in our world. And that begins to put the church and politics in some, some level of conjunction. And I don't think God ever in turn intended the church to take a political stance or to provide any kind of ruling in our day in the way that progressive dispensationalism is doing it mm. tell tell by the way tell daryl hello for me yeah we will <laughs> we will <laughs> so um one of our favorite questions to ask um is and and we ask everybody that comes on is uh other than the word of god okay other than scripture what has been the most influential book or teacher or theologian that has guided you in your understanding of the word of God really just helped you grow personally? Well, Zane Hodges. Mm. Zane. Yeah. yeah. And we worked together with E.D. Hirsch, which is the name I mentioned earlier. Yep. And what he laid out as the basic principles Zane could follow. He could think through them. And he would, you know, we'd have lunch together and he would just, we would just talk. He did not mind my, I mean, I'm just this little kid here, questioning things that he taught or positions he took. And he would, with patience, lay them out and explain it. So Zane was really the most influential. Can I mention one other though? Yeah, for sure. I really appreciated the the writing of Elizabeth Elliot 
and what Jim Elliott and the other missionaries that went to the Alka Indians, mm. I think they reflected Christ as clearly as most, at least well-known, figures in today's world. And uh, it really influenced my, that was part of what brought me out of engineering into considering ministry. That's great. That's great. Well, Dr. Johnson, um, we really appreciate you giving us your time and uh, just coming on and being part of our podcast. Uh, it has been a wonderful time to get to know you, to hear a little bit of your testimony, to talk about your book, Expository Hermeneutics, and uh, just to glean a little bit of wisdom from you, um, talking about dispensationalism. Uh, just, I mean, we, we've touched a myriad of topics today, and I think we could have touched uh, for another two hours, and we still would have been, uh, you know, talking, um, because it's just your depth of knowledge, and we appreciate that, and thank you very, very much for coming on today. Thank you. Well, thank you, Cody, and um, I've forgotten my, your right-hand man, oh, but I, I don't remember right-hand man. Yeah. Are you a Cub yeah. fan? Are you a Cub fan? Well, I was. A Cub fan, you know, I got, we got a new winner this year in uh, Ar Arlington, Texas. Yeah, they won. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so you're a Rangers fan now? Wow. Yeah, I used Rangers. to go to Wrigley Field. <laughs> I'm still a Cub fan, even though I live here in Miami. But, yeah. well, I was always a fan. I, under I, I understand. Whatever Team Nolan runs on, I was a fan. <laughs> As a kid, <laughs> so, Houston, and then the Rangers. So, yeah. 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 Well, again, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, it Thanks. Is, uh, fantastic. And uh, God bless you. Thank you for joining the Transform 365 podcast, a ministry dedicated to helping you grow in relationship to Christ. If you want to know more, find us at transform365.com or on our church website, www.swcc.org, located in Miami, Florida. Until next time, remember... The only work in grace is to let grace work in you. God bless.